Hello and welcome to Cinemakers, Amy Heckerling. This is episode 47, Johnny Dangerously, from 1984. See, I'm Mike Nancy. And I'm Kara gell And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And you guys, this Fargan movie, I kind of hate this movie. Oh man, that's disappointing. I know that you really like it, and I was looking forward to it. We talked about it last week, and it just did not work for me. It didn't really work for me either. Even a little bit. Oh no, it's a waking up in Reno reverse situation. Like, I get what it's trying to do. Like, the best description I have of this movie is that it's like a Leslie Nielsen movie on one-fifth speed. Mm. It's like, it's a spoof, it's a send-up, it's a parody, but there's just, it's trying to also be like an actual gangster movie, I think, and like, it just, I don't think it works like that. I would rather have like, just throwing jokes at the wall and like, have a lot of them be dumb and bad, but like, I'd just rather have way more jokes, but there are stretches of this movie where nothing even remotely funny is happening on screen. That's what I, I kind of liked about it. it. To me, I've described it as a, the, a lost Mel Brooks script or something. I appreciated the fact that like it tried to also be like a normal movie at times, but I was actually quite impressed that she was able to just like maintain the pace of this thing. I hadn't seen this in like 30 years. I had almost Jesus forgotten Christ. all of it. I know, it's insane. Like, like I'm 30 years it. old. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this when I was like eight. Maybe that was part of it. Just like when I realized like what, what I was watching, everything just like sort of flooded back and, and like I just had a great time. I just, I just had so much fun. Well, one thing that we've learned on Wistful Thinking is that like nine years old, old is a really special time where like <laughs> if you see something that at like the age of nine or if the character is like nine years old it is like indelible in people's hearts and minds so that might have something to do with it i didn't think it was that bad i just like not for me <laughs> not not my thing yeah like i don't think it's a bad movie i just think it's not funny enough what about Michael Keaton? Like, to me, I thought he was electric in this thing. Like, by the end of it, I was like, I don't. He's really? Fine. I thought at the end, I was like, man, he should have played Joker instead of Batman. Like, he was, I thought he was on fire. Yeah. No, he would make a good Joker. I think the other thing, and Joey, I don't know how much gangster genre stuff you've taken in. I've not seen a lot of, like, the original gangster stuff. I've just seen, like, weird parody stuff or like next generation trying to be that older stuff stuff i feel like i probably like missed a lot of the jokes that are really like steeped in the gangster genre or not i'm not sure i think that's another difficulty of watching this movie 33 years 34 years after it came out because like instead of just of only quote-unquote only being 50 years from the, the era that they're they're parodying we're now 80 years and I've seen like I'm familiar with those kind of movies and I feel like I've seen some of the bigger ones but I'm not especially steeped in them I get what they're doing I just it, it is a genre it's a decade it's something that I like you Kara I don't know a ton about and it just it, it feels like like I understand like kind of what they're going for like you know my boss and sort of caricatures and like why I oughta and stuff like that I don't have the nuance like I was thinking like it'd be the equivalent today of like making a movie that like like what were the 60s known for cinematically and I also I, I was struggling to come up with that, like what the '60s were known for. I mean, other than like Alfred Hitchcock, I, I don't know. I don't know. It just I think it's it's weird to do it 50 years after the fact, and I think it's also even weirder somehow to watch it 80 years or 30 years after it came out, like 80 years after the era that they're making fun of. Yeah. Or lovingly making fun of. I'm not sure. Like, it feels like this is the kind of thing where there's movies like today that I'm struggling now to come up with examples, but like where 
is a movie that the filmmakers love and that they it's a genre that they love and they want to send it up in like a loving way. Like it feels like the people who made this like the, the writers love these movies. Yeah, definitely. But I just don't know them enough to be like, oh yeah, I get it. Like I love it. And Heckerling also has spoken about just seeing Jimmy Cagney movies on TV all the time as a kid and really loving those. So like I get that. It just wasn't for me. I think you guys are onto something in that it's like it's pretty far removed today yeah. from what it's trying to get at. And like I, I have a I like those old gangster films. I mean, they're more I mean, I like them more as like film history. Like I think, you know, because just like it's early filmmaking and stuff. And that's kind of interesting. I love Cagney as an actor. I love like his filmography. But like, you know, and Keaton is basically doing Cagney in this, right? Yeah, yeah, it's very much Cagney. Uh, they even go to, like, a James Cagney movie at the end of the movie. I think that was maybe a step too far. But, yeah, you know, like, Little Caesar and stuff, and, like, with Edward G. Robinson, like, this is definitely playing more off of those films. And I think, like, today's audience is is, is just too sophisticated. Like, we've seen Goodfellas, you know? We've been exposed to Scorsese and stuff. And, like, you know, I would see him getting a huge kick out of this, right? Because these are the movies that, like, he kind of grew up on. And I think it has a... It, there's a bit of a generation gap... But I think for me as a kid, maybe what today also sort of clicked with me is just how Looney Tunes it is. Like, it is a live-action cartoon. They yes. may as well, he may as well be Bugs Bunny to me. And so I settled into that, and I really, that, that just kind of, like, took me the rest of the way. I had a friend come over and watch the last hour of this with me, because I was watching, and then he came over and brought dinner over, and the, t- the two of us just watched it, and he's like, I feel like I would like this more if Kermit the Frog was the lead. And I was like, you know what? That actually is, like, a really good point. Like, I would, if Kermit was, like, in the lead of this movie, absolutely. Like, I would be all on board for that, but the fact that it's just Michael Keaton, like, when this movie gets really wildly visual, like, when they hang Joe Piscopo by the hook on the back of the door, and they, like, close and open the door, like, that's really funny. Oh, that was Joe Piscopo. <laughs> it is Joe Piscopo. Yeah, he's he's insane. I knew he was in this, and I saw the movie, and I know who Joe Piscopo is and what he looks like, and somehow did not realize that was him. This was one that I was glad that my friend was watching with me because he's older, he's closer to Mike's age, and he was saying, "Oh, this that that's that guy, that's this guy, that's that guy," and like he recognized, you know, Mr. Hand was the newspaper mm-hmm. salesman guy yeah, at yeah. the. What I didn't recognize, my friend didn't recognize, is that Griffin Dunn, who is still an yeah. actor today, oh, yeah. plays his brother. Like you know, mm-hmm. he's still he's arguably more prolific than anyone else in this movie at all. Like he's just <laughs> he's in everything. Yeah, he directed one of my favorite movies, Practical Magic. Oh, he directed that? Uh, he directed a... that, weirdly. Oh, wow. <laughs> Speaking of Scorsese, he was in After Hours. He's the star of that. I mean, American Werewolf in London. I mean, he's in some great movies, yeah. He also made an okay documentary about Joan Didion, who happens to be his aunt. Oh, yeah, this is pretty stacked cast. Peter Boyle's in here, you know? Like, he's fantastic. And I guess that's kind of the point, but, like, Peter Boyle in, like, the opposite role that I've come to know him as, like... <laughs> I know Peter Boyle as, like, this sort of genteel old man, right? And then to see him in here, I know Peter Boyle, I think we even talked about this on another episode, Mike, like, he might have been in a movie that we talked about on another podcast, but... He's in um, Honeymoon in Vegas. He plays the chief in Hawaii. Oh, yes. Because he is uh, Clyde Bruckman in Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, which is one of my favorite X-Files episodes of all time. And... I love him as this, like, kind old man, and to see him as, like, a mob boss, I guess that's the joke, in a way, that, like, he's, like, this sort of kind old man who also happens to be a mob boss, but, like, he kind of seems like a good mob boss, like a good guy? Yeah, like, he did Young Frankenstein, right? So, I mean, he he had, like, some comedy chops under his belt, and, like, this is sort of right up his alley, 
I feel like I mentioned Mel Brooks earlier and this has that sort of flavor to it so but that's really interesting like how he's like the nicest mob boss in the world like he you know sends money back to the public like gives his enforcers cookies when they're feeling down and stuff like is that Heckerling, is that her touch, like making these men softer? You know, like you would usually think of gangsters to be so tough and everything, but like, no, like, you know, I could picture these guys knitting or something. I don't know, but I was thinking about how kind of femme his apartment is, like even before he gets married when there's just like girls all around it's all of this satin and like beautiful flowers everywhere and i wasn't sure like is that a thing in gangster movies do they have really like posh apartments <laughs> i think just the opulence to a degree yeah. is what it was sort of getting at but like more than opulence it, it had like it felt like distinctly femme to me which i found interesting and maybe that's part of what you were talking about because i think the interesting thing to say here because I don't know if that was her touch or not, but the interesting thing that I that, that I think, Carrie, you mentioned last time is that this was the movie, that this movie, not necessarily flopped. The budget was like $9 million. I think it made like 17 of the box office. Like it, it, you know, unless it had a crazy marketing budget, made its money back. But it flopped enough with critics that she was like, okay, I'm done directing things that other people write. I only want to direct things that I write now. And so this was like kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, obviously, Fast Times was great, but she didn't write that. This was written by four dudes, one of whom has a writing credit on Blazing Saddles. The same guy also wrote Yes, Giorgio, that Luciano Pavarotti movie that has to get me covered, which is (laughs) atrocious. So this guy is really all over the map. But this was the movie where she was like, "Okay, I'm done. Like, I want to direct my own visions now. So maybe she, maybe these were her touches, maybe they're not, I don't know, but I think, you know, in terms of the Cinemakers thing, like Christopher Nolan, for the most part, he and his brother always wrote his movies, right, Mike, and Soderbergh usually wrote his, or he had a couple different writers, I think, he had a couple writers who, like, he sort of went back to a lot, but here, from, I think, from the next movie on out, or at least most of it, is going to be stuff she writes and she'll actually have control over, so I don't know how much of this was her touch and how much wasn't, but, you know, let's give her credit for the good things. Well, there's one thing I really want to give her all the credit in the world for, and it may be the point where a lot of people might have turned on this movie, especially in 1984, and that's the instructional video, Your Testicles in You, <laughs> where she just got dicks, dicks, dicks into this movie like for, for like a solid three minutes. There's just like all they're talking about, which is like huge testicles and all this kind of like sex talk and everything. Like that was impressive to me. My favorite thing about that scene is just thinking about how that was the film that was just on Michael Keaton's projector. Like, for whatever reason, that was the last thing he watched. You know what I mean? Like, he either shows it to so many people, like that character, aside from the fact that he has a projector in his bedroom, he just has that film queued up that he shows it or he watches it a lot. Like, I just, that's a very weird character quirk that I kind of love. I think he was, he was trying to talk his brother out of premarital sex. Oh, I know so. why he was doing it there, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> he didn't prep it. It was just ready. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I hear what you mean, right. It's like if I came over your house, you're like, here, let me show you something. You just, like, fired up your DVD player, and that was in the DVD player. Like, it's not like you went to your <laughs> shelf and got it off the shelf. It was just in there already. Be like, why are you, are you, are you watching this? Just very resourceful. Interestingly, this is another movie that has a subplot about trying to get laid. Although, I think that's kind of maybe where the similarities end. I understand that this is a spoof and a send-off of like an era that was far less kind to women than the 80s. Not that you know the 80s were necessarily great to women, but they were better than the 30s. But 
at one, one point when his brother is getting married and they ask his bride to be what she wants to do and she's like well I'm his gal and he makes all the decisions so like it's up to him and I'm like oh like these characters in the last movie you know like we talked about how Phoebe Cates and Jennifer Jason Lee had like all this you know agency and they have these like frank honest and open conversations that were such a like a breath of fresh air and here we have like one of the only women in the movie just like well I'm a woman and I don't get a say so I don't really care what happens and I was like oh boy like I get again that it's a parody but it's it was it was rough a little rough but- that that is the joke though because even even Michael Keaton's character he scoffs at that answer you know and everyone kind of looks at each other like in this day and age kind of with the expression on their face so i mean i think the i think they were trying to go for something that just didn't land where it was like yeah that's you know the oppression of that age and how ingrained it is and all that kind of thing but like yeah and even in the 80s they weren't you know that far removed from that so they could have gone a little deeper what what i really liked is their mother ma kelly to me she steals this entire movie yeah she's great terrible irish accent but she's pretty good just again what they're able to get away with her saying with her character like the idea that she comes out as bisexual in the movie she keeps her vibrator in her purse like it's no big deal a modern woman right well yeah just like very progressive sort of attitude and it's funny how she's living in the 30s and she's just like more advanced thinking modern thinking this was one of the very first PG-13 movies. So the MPAA, I mean, we talk about it a couple different times on a couple different podcasts about how they they sort of have what's seemingly arbitrary rules and whatnot, but they used to have only PG and R and like movies like, like I think Poltergeist and Raiders are all PG when they probably should be PG-13 or whatever. But this is one of the very first, I guess they were able to get away with a little bit more is what I'm trying to say. The fact that they had this like this sort of newer designation that they could have, you know, more risque topics or sort of more unexpected conversations or set pieces or whatever, just because it wasn't just for kids. Like there was a specific designation like, oh, you have to be a certain age to watch this or... I guess that's fortunate. They're able to sort of like push the envelope a little further than you would have if it just had to be like marketed as PG. I think they also get away with it a little bit more because it's like a full-on parody thing. The the whole thing with Maroney in his dialect, like I know they're they're just, they're making fun of like a foreign accent and everything, but it's actually for what they have to do, it's kind of clever because he's able to say like the f word and swear and all this kind of stuff and like do it so much to the degree that to me it just sounds like he's saying fucking. That is just a really clever way to get away with using the f word. So either having to tone it down from an R or up from a PG, they did a pretty good job. This was a movie that, like, I struggled to take notes on. It was a movie where I was, like, watching it very intently because I was like, what am I missing? Like, I was trying to decode the movie while I was watching it. I did like that the movie started with, at least the version I watched, which apparently wasn't on all versions, it starts with the Weird Al song. Yeah, my first note is, hell yeah, Weird Al. Yeah. And it's a, it's a song that he wrote for this movie. There's multiple versions of this? So it wasn't on the home video release, or at least one version of the home video release, because of legal reasons. Oh, rights issues. Okay, yeah. Yeah, because this movie... It's hard to find. It's in print. You can get a DVD of it. But it's not streaming anywhere. Like, you can't rent or buy this streaming. It's it's not for free or any Like, you have to buy a physical or find a physical copy. It's always weird. Like, I feel like everything is available, and you, you come across a movie like this, and it's like, oh, I guess everything's not available. It's weird. I mean, just in light of that, it's, like, Michael Keaton, and, like, this was the era in which he was really taken off. Like, not only is this a movie from my childhood, but, like, Mr. Mom and Gung Ho, you know? I, I never saw Night Shift until I was a little older. That's, that's more of, like, an R-rated movie. I think. But like, yeah, I remember him as like coming up around this time. Like he was just the man, like he was funny as hell. And so 
and he's like still huge, you know. He's Birdman, he's the Vulture. He did Birdman 4. It's just weird that his films aren't all streaming or readily available or easy to find. And then that there's a Weird Al song on here, too. That's just a deep cut. Like, I, I don't remember that. One thing that I really did like about this movie is that this is, in a way, like the Princess Bride movie that you covered on Whistle Thinking Kara, that it's mostly, almost entirely told in a flashback to a young boy. And I like a lot when it got super meta when the screen gets like wavy and wiggly and he's like oh this will go away in a couple seconds and the kid's like what are you talking about like i love that and then like that just sort of gets dropped yeah because right before that also it seems like it's like a title showing you that it's 1936 and a car pulls in to the frame and actually crashes into it it was like a physical piece of the set like that's great and they don't do that for the rest of the movie there was one part, Michael Keaton talks to the cameras about not having sex or something. Like, he breaks the fourth wall. Like, I want more of that. Like, for a movie to do that, and I feel like do that so well, like, play with not, like, genre conventions or, like, of the 30s, but just of movies in general. Like, I want more of that because what is there works so well, but it's just not there enough for my liking. I hear you totally. I would love more of that, too. But I'd also just think or feel like that style of comedy just wasn't really in the forefront yet like especially as much as it is today with shit like Deadpool you know for crying out loud like it's excessive so like to even get these little moments like that I think we're lucky that they were clever enough to write that stuff in because even when you get to stuff like Airplane and Naked Gun like he doesn't like Frank Drebin never really turns directly to the camera and like has a monologue or anything like that so it was sort of few and far between at the time whereas now it's sort of widespread but those are definitely yeah you've pinpointed some highlight moments for sure during this. Um, One of my favorite moments is when they flash back to the pet shop in between the stories and he's putting the price tag stickers on the puppies. Like all the little things like he's doing at the pet shop, like polishing the turtles, like that stuff to me was was just fantastic. Like when we first see Danny DeVito, who is the DA until he gets killed, when we first are introduced to him, Michael Keaton's brother gets a job as the assistant DA, and he goes in there, and they don't make any note of this. I don't know if either of you caught it. I'm guessing at least one of you probably did. Under Danny DeVito's desk, sticking out the front, are just a pair of women's feet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's legs. just like, like yeah. he's getting a blowjob under there. He doesn't go back to it. They don't reference it. But like it's the, these little background gags that are really funny. It just I hate almost 100% of the dialogue. It's like everything else I love, but it's like the dialogue just doesn't work. Like There's not enough jokes there. Like it, like the little background things, the way that like it's meta, like that's peppered in nicely it just i wish the dialogue was more reflective of that kind of comedy i feel like there was a lot in the dialogue but i also got the distinct feeling that i was missing a lot of jokes yeah it's very quick i felt like that was something i was surprised about like just how rapid paced it was there's a couple lines of dialogue that stick out to me but what happens up is some of it sort of peters out throughout the movie and it and it you know might come back here and there but there's one part in the beginning where it's snowing and his mom's like man this is like the worst july in history and then it's her birthday and you know she's depicted as being like very elderly and they're like oh she's like it's my 29th birthday I hope I reach 30 so like those landed for me but again yeah there wasn't as much of that you know they were sort of also like you said earlier Joey trying to be like an actual gangster movie so part of the comedy possibly what they were playing at was just mimicry of those types of movies at the time and just you know how ridiculous it is to be like hey i got a gun check out my gun see like yeah it's just the way we talk right instead of like target practice it's like let's go uh help some old old ladies cross the street so i think we're missing part of the joke in that sense possibly is that 
part of the parody is just straight up like mimicry and flattery. There were a bunch of really ableist yes. jokes or gags that were upsetting. And I did actually like just last week watch Young Frankenstein and like, which was a movie that I loved as a kid and was really put off by the amount of extremely ableist jokes that are in that. So I guess that was just like a thing of the time. Like there still are a lot of ableist jokes in film, but not to the extent that there were in these two movies. Like, especially like every time you say like with, when Mr. Hand gets hit in the head, it's like, I can see again, but now I can't here and now I can see and hear but now I don't remember who I am like that kind of stuff even like his invalid mother right like every scene it's like she's got a different problem physically like some kind of medical issue as somebody who frequently has lots of new medical issues that to me wasn't really the joke the joke was the doctor as he's leaving being like there's some bad news blah 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 it's gonna cost and then each time it's like an increasing amount of money but he frames it as like but today special we have the low low price of whatever it is. Of $7,500 to fix the blocked salivary gland, yeah. Yeah. So that actually didn't really read as that ableist, but there's like another part where Joe Piscopo like pulls up and parks in a accessible parking space and the person that's with him is like, no, that's a handicapped space. And he says, I'm handicapped, I'm psychotic. And like, that's fucked up. There's also at the beginning of the movie, like the flash flashback like back to when he was a kid you see him like walking down the street like pulling pranks on people and one of the pranks is that he cuts the leash of a blind man seeing eye dog oh yeah that's how i knew i was gonna hate that character of young Piscopo. <laughs> yeah and that's just like a few of the examples but they were pretty egregious really stood out to me because like all of them like they could have just not done that joke and it would have been fine like if they just had literally anything else happen yeah, I think that also comes as a consequence of just filling the frame with everything you've got, too. It's like, and that can just turn people off. Yeah, pull back a little bit. Yeah, because even for my taste, like, that is insensitive and, like, this does sort of do too much. It is in its own right excessive, too. And I think that's why for critics it probably failed because they just were, like, exhausted by it. Exhausting is a good word to use for that. I mean, I was already exhausted when I was watching it, so I can't say how much of it was the movie and how much of it was I'm just tired, but it felt exhausting while I was watching it. Well, what I can say is that this movie is the same length as Fast Times and feels like an hour longer. So much longer. Yeah. No, I didn't think it felt that. Well, I liked it more. So, but to me, it didn't fly by quite as fast, but it was quick. I appreciate that she has made you know, two 90-minute movies. Like that's, I feel like that's a skill that directors just don't have, is to be able to tell like a concise story. Oh, boy, you're telling me. And actually, that did go into my consideration of choosing Amy Eckerling over another director. It was like, how many two-hour movies has she made? Or like over two-hour movies? Because that's really my threshold. You know, I'm, I'm able to watch five movies in a row, but like I still would much rather watch a 90-minute movie than a two-hour. Like I said, I'd rather watch a movie that's the appropriately length i'll say that like mandy is really long but mandy feels like it's it's supposed to be two hours you know what i mean like that like that there's so much going on i could use like another half hour of fast times (laughs) if i'm being honest with you (laughs) yeah yeah they could have but like at the same time if there was that other half hour we probably would have been like no they could have cut like 30 minutes in the middle i think we're all saying that this is too long Oh boy. You know, if we're playing the the real bad like how do you fix it? Like I think you just got to you got to throw more jokes at it. Well, no, you'd have to like cut some out, right? I mean, it goes a little that's for me it goes a little too far. Yeah, I think so. You think cut jokes out? 
Oh, yeah, you could probably trim this down. Yeah, because even though I wasn't getting a lot of the jokes, I knew that they were jokes, and it was just, like, too much, all, like, back to back to back. Okay. You might be able to cut out the whole, unfortunately, even though he gives a great performance, Joe Piscopal role, right? Because that's like the C story going on, is that he figures out that Johnny and Tommy are brothers, and they're on the opposite sides of the law. Wait, wait, Johnny and Tommy? Oh, hi. Oh, 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 oh hi, Mark. Mark. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't know what you're talking about, but I just, I got, my, my brain got sidetracked. As much as I loved it, is was that Mary Lou Henner who, yeah, yeah like she's amazing in this and I don't want to, you know, take more roles away from women or anything. But like, again, like if we're looking to trim places, like, you know, you could probably condense a little bit of that storyline more. and Yeah. Or just like either give her more to do or cut her out, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Make her more, in- integrate her earlier and have her be there more and do more. But I mean, yeah, there's ways. Because I feel like if you cut your Episcopo out, you could then have Tommy realize that his brother is the DA as opposed to learning from Joe Piscopo, right? Like, you can just avoid that altogether. Although I did, you know, <laughs> it's such a dumb joke, but I love that, you know, they wait until they get married because, you know, we talked about, you know, your testicles and you, they wait until they get married to have sex and then they go to the closest spot. Like, the, you know, they waited for this grand moment and then they just go to the janitor's closet and then he finds out he's so dedicated to his job that he runs away and then that, that janitor just comes and like singing like a an old like Christian gospel song or something and then sees, I guess, presumably a naked woman and then just sing, sings hallelujah, which consent is an issue but i just thought that was a funny little not sight gag i'm like why are we hovering on this janitor's closet and then the janitor just strolls in like oh wow okay now i get it yeah like everything is a bit and like everything ends with a button and they go for quantity not quality all the time so like i think there's something here there's jokes here for everybody that land differently for each person so for me one of my favorite jokes and this is super stupid is when johnny goes back to the old neighborhood and everyone calls him johnny dangerously and he's like gather around gather around and and he's like what did i tell you and they all sort of recite back in unison that you're not johnny dangerously you're, you know this and that this and that and he's like that's right and then the pope's there he's like and it's dom deloise and i don't i mean it's just so irreverent and stupid and i just love that part but that feels like it belongs in a different movie to me it did like it's close i don't know it feels like family guy-esque or simpson-esque or something like that like it is a little out of bounds of where they go yeah that's like peter griffin saying hey this is like that time i met the pope and like you know it's that like exactly that's a good call there was one extremely nerdy joke that I enjoyed, which is when he's about to be executed, I guess, but then escapes from prison. The priest that's there supposedly reading him his last rites is speaking what most people would just assume is Latin, but he's actually just like saying a bunch of words that end in U.S. and like other Latin suffixes. Anti-meridium, post-meridium, uncle meridium. Yeah. Who missed the bus? I missed the bus. You missed the bus. That made me laugh really hard as somebody who took too much lat. You know, not too far removed in terms of, you know, words and English language and conjugation and stuff. There was a line that I loved, which doesn't really pay off, but a woman's like, hey, you know your last name's an adverb? He's like, yeah, I guess it is. Like, that's it. But Like, I just love yeah. <laughs> that, like, that's called out. He's like, I kind of like that. Yeah. It's just like this weird, dumb observation. I was like, yeah, all right. I also really like when they go to the movies towards the end and his mother goes to the concession stand and orders popcorn, milk duds, and a mm-hmm. white fish. 
I think by that point, I was just like, I'm not on board really with this movie. And that didn't, like, I didn't laugh at that. But, like, it's stuff like that that it felt like there was a lot of, like, whenever they acknowledge that, like, we're in a different time period and kind of anything goes, I think it worked well. Like, there's the line where his brother's like, how am I ever going to get laid in 1930? Like, the fact, like, that they call it out. I feel like you're making a movie 50 years after the fact. The more you call attention to it, it almost seems antithetical. Like, the more you call attention to it, I think the funnier it is. Like, that worked for me. I don't know if it worked for everybody, but whenever they call that like isn't it weird that like we're in 1930 or whatever like that worked for me i think generally more often than not i agree with that i like that too where it's like they're sort of acting like it was 1984 but they're clearly you know like in the 1930s like i like when johnny and lil are like walking and talking and dreaming about the future and stuff they walk all the way to new jersey he's like where the hell are we but they're talking about like you know stuff people in like this 50s and 60s talked about about like raising the nuclear family they're like we'll get a little house with a white picket fence and have little kids and i'll wave hi to the neighbor and like fix the car and all this stuff and i was like that's funny to me because they're just acting like it's today not like it's then i like that part about it i hate to say it already in this podcast but i think i've run out of notes things to say about this movie well, that happens oh, when have. we have good movies to talk about. We usually talk about them less. I don't think that's. I don't think that's why I have them out of notes. My, you know, I, I don't think I love this movie so much. That I just was engrossed I'm, in it. I'm joking. Oh wait, wait, wait! I have one. Also, when he was in prison, his prison uniform is fantastic. It's like this couture version of what the other guys are wearing. The stripes are thinner. They're a darker blue, and he has this little ascot thing and this like three-piece jumpsuit that he's wearing. It's fantastic. I appreciated that. And he's eating sushi. Yeah, also he's eating sushi. I wanted to bring up the wardrobe too, because at one point when Mary Lou Henner's doing her song and on the piano, the bottom of her skirt flips up and it's yeah. like red. Oh, I didn't even notice that. I thought that was so awesome. I was like a magic trick or something. <laughs> I'm sure it's very common, but it was a really cool effect and it made me think of wardrobe. You know what makes me a little bit sad? Speaking of Mary Lou Henner, you guys might have heard this, but she famously has a photographic memory. And so she remembers everything about this movie. And so I feel bad for her. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just had to say that. That's funny, though. Oh, I do want to shout out, though, this is the second time and uh, second time Taylor Negron has showed up as a delivery oh, man. Oh, so yeah, far. I saw and, that. Yeah, RIP Taylor Negron, but hilarious as a delivery man. Two movies in a row. I just looked while we were talking, and every single one of Amy Heckerling's movies is an hour 38 or shorter. God bless. What a, what a hero. All right. Way to hit the target, really. Like, she's a marksman. Which is truly not the hero that we deserve, but the hero that we need right now. Especially coming off of Christopher Nolan. I don't want to prejudge Amy Heckling's movies, but just knowing what I know about Christopher Nolan's movies, like movies that I like way more, but he made all, toward the end, it was all like 220, 240, 245, like just long ass movies. Yeah, well, that's what happens when you don't have anyone to say no to you. And to be like, hey, uh, you could lose about 40 minutes in the middle. I think it's really fantastic that she manages to keep it brief. The one thing I also wanted to point out was that we were just saying about how or I brought up earlier about how she wanted to only direct things that she wrote, but the next movie that we're doing, National Lampoon's European Vacation, she does not have a writing credit on. She might have collaborated with John Hughes, I don't know, but he's got the story by and the screenplay by credit on that one, so. I've only seen Christmas Vacation in that series, so I don't know. Oh, really? Oh, and I've also seen the Jennifer Aniston, Jason Sudeikis remake. Does that count? <laughs> no, by no that? means. I've that never seen it. 
Emma Roberts oh, as the daughter God. and some boy as the as the son. Stop talking. Stop talking. Well, I mean, you know, that series went downhill way before the remake. So, I mean, the National Lampoon series in general, it survived a long time just off of the good graces of the Animal House name, I think. And then, you know, we got a lot of hard-to-follow National Lampoon movies. But Vacation series, pretty solid. So I'm looking at the IMDb of the woman who was the costume designer on this. Her name is Patricia Norris. And it looks like she's worked with David oh. Lynch a lot. She's done costumes and production design for Twin Peaks and Lost Highway. Interesting. Jordan's favorite, David Lynch, Lost Highway. Joey, if you recall, one of Soderbergh's like friends was, he was like a set dresser for Lynch movies, like for Twin Peaks and stuff. So if you go back and listen to like early Cinemakers, I think he's the guy who's the cult leader. He's like the L. Ron Hubbard in uh, Schizopolis. And we were like going into his IMDb and stuff. And so like, oh, he ended up working with David Lynch a lot as like a set dresser. So like I said, you know, the next movie that we're doing is European Vacation, written by John Hughes. But then both Locus Talking Movies, Clueless, Vamps, I think maybe everything from here on out that she directs is her screenplay. So we're not quite there yet, but we are beginning to enter, I guess, what our sort of our pure, true vision of Cinemakers was, right, Mike, where it's like the, the auteur vision that she writes and she directs that this is her, you know, for better or worse, these are her movies. But next week... Same bat time, same bat channel, right after, I think, oh, I think this episode comes out the week of Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to everyone. But after Thanksgiving, we will come back with one more non-Heckerling written movie, and then it's just from there on out, it's all stuff that she's written. Karen, do you have any other notes about Johnny Dangerously before we wrap up and close up shop? That their father was a criminal who was executed by the state and his mother keeps a photograph of him like on the electric chair framed on the table and i thought that was really funny she says to johnny dangerously's brother your father always wanted you to be a lawyer and then they cut to the photo of the father in the electric chair so i thought that was hilarious i like that they even would take a picture of a guy in an electric chair yeah. Joe Piscopo had a really great line like towards the beginning, and I forget what the middle of it was, the middle of the joke was, but he said something to the effect of, dames are put on this earth to steal our energy, do something else, and laugh at us when they see us naked. It was a really good joke. Mike, any other last thoughts about Johnny Dangerously? Sorry to maybe put a put a buzzkill of sorts on this. I mean, I don't think it's bad. It just didn't it didn't work. And I think comedies are difficult to a talk about, but b if it's not working, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to rebound from that. So no, I, I'm fine. No, that's cool. I mean, I still liked it a lot. Just some quick key moments I just wanted to mention was um, I loved when he uh, when he was dancing for his girlfriend and he he's like jitterbugging and he goes into full on break dancing oh, yeah. like that. That just blew my mind. I, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> the judge was the skipper from Gilligan's Island, and then and then he was also like the police chief. Like they cut back to him at one point, and he's still at like the judge's like area, but he's wearing a cop uniform and talking on the radio. I thought that was great. And then and then just I don't know. I mean, this just has to be a sheer coincidence. But there's a toilet bomb in this, like there is in Lethal Weapon Two. Peter Boyle goes in to take a dump apparently, or use the toilet, and then like the bathroom explodes um and if you haven't seen lethal weapon 2 at one point a character sits down on the toilet and notices that it's rigged with a bomb that's it though otherwise like i i really 
I was really surprised how little I recalled of this movie. Well, you saw 30 years. Mike, you've seen thousands. You've seen literally thousands of movies since you saw Johnny Dangerously the first time. You know what it is? And I haven't seen it since. So I guess that's why most movies I've seen as a kid, I've seen again. And it's just really strange to me, I guess, that I just haven't seen it since I was a kid. Do you remember? Did you like it as a kid? Yeah, I did. I did. I don't know why I didn't see it more often as a kid, but I did like it. Wait, did you say that you saw it in theaters or just uh, like uh, you rented it? No, no. It was just on TV, like on HBO. Yeah, it was just, I really enjoyed it this time. So, I mean, it's got issues. Definitely, like things are dating it, like jokes and stuff like that. But I think for the time, like it's, it's really solid. Well, this really turned into an episode of Wisdom. It truly did. But not for me and you, Kara. Just for just for Mike. Sometimes it's really only for one person. As long as it matters to somebody, I guess, is the point. But for all things Cinemakers and Wistful Thinking, and all of our close to 25 shows now, now that we've announced Hanks and Cruise, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. I don't think I mentioned this last time, but you can now sign up for a Cage Club monthly newsletter that I write and send on the first of the month every month. Only once a month, you will not get overwhelmed because we have so many shows on the network that all have so many things going on. If you want to make sure that you don't miss out on anything, go to cageclub.me slash newsletter and fill out the form and I will send you a newsletter the first of the month every month and just stay up with the best of the best of the network. I pick my editor's picks, if you will, of favorite episodes from each show of the month and just, you know, the biggest news. So we are a couple days away from, I guess, December 1st. Sign up and get a newsletter soon. Email cinemakers at cageclub.me. Say hi. Let us know what you think of Amy Hackling so far. Again, we might not get to these for a while because we're recording these a little bit in advance, but we will read them at some point. So just drop us a line and say hi. Yeah, and if you want to ask us about or talk about Soderbergh or Nolan or The Collective or Fede Alvarez or anyone else that we've covered. The Cinemakers of Case Club to me, just drop us a note and say hi. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Cara Gallo-Regan. And we'll see you next time for National Lampoon's European Vacation right here on Cinemakers. Goodbye, goodbye.